Well, thank you, worship team. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. As we continue our study, that's page 933 in our Bibles here. Pastor Nate was telling me this week that when uh, he teaches uh, the Word of God in the, with the high schoolers, he doesn't give them page numbers. He, he makes them look it up themselves, and I think that's great because I, I, I walked by the room as they were teaching on Wednesday night and got all these teenagers with their Bibles open, and may we learn from them, right? Page 933, we cheat a little here. You know, most of this letter uh, to the Corinthians is, is written to address problems in the church. Uh, problems in the church. The church on earth has problems. And so Paul was writing to them about uh, conflict, lawsuits, immorality, idolatry, misusing spiritual gifts. There was, there was just a lot of pride and conflict going on that it caused so many issues. And it's like Paul's going through a checklist. i got to talk to him about this and this and this. All because of what he said in the opening, uh, actually the second verse of the entire letter, which was that we are called to be holy. And so he wanted them to be a holy church. A holy church is a church that cares and loves and serves each other. Hopefully the kind of thing that we can experience here at Open Door, that we would love and serve and care for each other. First Corinthians 13, a few weeks back we were looking at that. It's called the love chapter, right? It kind of captures his heart for those, the relational goal that he had in mind for the church there. But you know, everything that he's written in these chapters about problems are about the church here in this life. And as we come to chapter 15, he makes a major shift because suddenly he's thinking about what's after this life. And so chapter 15 that we're starting today is called the resurrection chapter because there's so much more to life than than this life. This is is good doctrine. This is essential stuff about the future. And so in these coming weeks, we'll be going section by section through this important uh, chapter. But Paul opens this chapter about the resurrection to tell us how we can know for sure that we will live after we die. How can we know that we will live after we die? He says, I'm going to give you the answer to that, and that's called the gospel, because that is good news. Verse 1, now brothers, I want you to, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. He's essentially saying you have to get the gospel right, so I am writing to you to make sure you have the gospel right. If there's any need in the the church of Christ today and in the world today, it's that we get the gospel right, that we get the gospel clear. There's some key essential words here that we need to get right as well. The words gospel, saved, believe, uh, hopefully the familiarity of those words hasn't eroded the, the impact in our understanding of them. Starting with the word gospel used in verse 1 and 2, gospel is the Greek expression for good news. In Luke 2 verse 10, uh, when the angel announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds on the hillside, 
the angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. It's this expression, good news of great joy. And what was the good news? The good news was that unto you is born this day a what? Savior. The good news is the Savior. That's what this passage is going to be telling us, that the good news is about Jesus, our Savior. And so by this gospel, you are saved. The word saved always implies saved from something. And the word saved is used in the, in, throughout the Bible in, in some common ways, but then also spiritual ways. The common ways is the way we use it as well. In, the Bible talks of being saved from the danger of armies, to be saved from a shipwreck, to be saved any kind of danger. Uh, but, but here, clearly, it is to be saved or spared from eternal judgment, eternal death, what the Bible calls hell the future judgment of those who are not saved by the good news of Jesus Christ. The stakes are eternal. Eternal judgment is what's at stake. The jailer in the first century city of Philippi pled with Paul after that angelic jailbreak, what must I do to be saved? It wasn't just physically, it's to be saved eternally And so Paul says, the gospel that I preached, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, that's the good news by which you are saved. So he's reminding them. He says, I'm going to remind you of this because, what, three and some years ago, before, I should say, uh, Paul had been in Corinth. He told them the gospel. They received the gospel. They believed the gospel. And hopefully you have believed the good news as well. But we have to realize there are two sides to the good news. You can't even understand good news without the bad news. So a familiar verse like John 3.16 contains the good news, but you have to realize that it's only in the context of the bad news of eternal judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Think about that, perish, but have eternal life. Two verses later, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The good news is only good in the context of the fact that we would perish eternally. We would be punished eternally if we are condemned and stand condemned. And and, and the, the point of the good news is that Jesus has done something so that we don't stand condemned but otherwise, we do. We cannot embrace the parts of the Bible that we like and ignore the parts that make us shudder. The consequences are that important, but if you'll notice, it starts with God so loved. God so loved. So, so his, his desire, his intent for us is out of his nature of loving us, and he, because he loved us, he wants, he, he wants us to have eternal life. Think about that term, eternal life. This life is not eternal. This life has, a, has, a, has an ending date. We all, we all know that we're, we're living on some kind of a timeline. We can all probably, just even thinking of our own age, kind of envision if this is birth and this is death. Right now, you can, just, you can point in your own heart where you think you are, okay? We don't know, but somewhere, we're somewhere in there. But this is life is not eternal, so there is a life that is that God wants us to be forever with him because he loves us. If you, if you are hearing this, whether in person or online, God loves you. That's, he, he, 
He conceived of you before he created you, and he created you because he loved you, and he, he wants you to know how you can live forever with him and be spared from the judgment that we all deserve. God in his love has not chosen to spare us from all difficulties in life. We know that. He has chosen, though, to spare us from the eternal judgment of our sin. Everybody experiences hard things, some worse from, than others. Basically, all of them may, we, we, we struggle to understand. But we have to understand it in the context that God did not just create us to live a few short years here. He saw the whole of our life. Uh, some of you, maybe you remember one, one time I brought a garden hose into the, into the room here. Anybody remember we had the garden hose? Yeah. So I had one end of the garden hose here. It's a 100-foot hose, and it ran along the stage and along the wall and ended up back there by the sound room. And then I think it was like a piece of duct tape I put on this end of the hose. Barring this illustration, I think from, originally from Francis Chan, that this, this little piece of duct tape, that's our life. And the rest of that hundred feet of hose just begins to represent the rest of our life. And so in perspective, we only have this much life here, but what we decide about Jesus Christ here determines where we're going to be for the rest of our life. So God loves us during this tiny fraction of life with all of the hard things. He, he loves those who are suffering in Israel and, and, and Gaza right now, Ukraine and Russia. He, he, he loves us as we might be suffering from a, a family thing or a marriage thing or a divorce thing or chronic pain or abuse or neglect or you're in, someone's in prison or in, in addiction or in persecution and all those things. God loves us right through all those things in this little tiny life. But he loves us so much that he wants us to be with him in a perfect eternal existence for the rest of our life. So we don't have to have the answers to everything in the, in the couple of inches. We need to know the good news of the gospel as he wants us to be with him forever. And so he's in the process of telling us, Paul is, what we must do to respond to what God has done for us, verse 2, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the right thing, if you believe the right thing. Verse 1, he used the phrase, take your stand or stand. In verse 2, he says, hold fast or hold firm. And at the end of verse 2, he uses the word believe, the key word uh, in, in the gospel of John and in all of the New Testament. He'll use it again at the end of our passage, at the end of chapter, of, of verse 11. The key word is the, is the word believe. What you believe in. Are you believing in the truth? Or are you believing in that which is false? Because um, he, he, he used it in a negative sense at the end of verse 2. And otherwise you've believed in vain. It is possible to believe the wrong thing. It is possible to put your faith in the wrong thing. Frankly, he's describing the religions of the world who believe something, but they believe the wrong thing. They're putting their faith in that which cannot save because he's going to describe what, what can save us. The, the common theme in, in the religions of the world is you are saved if you are a good person. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell is the falsehood that the world believes. 
You are good if you follow this religion. You are good if you are baptized as a baby. You are good if you do this. You, tragically wrong answers because they are believing in vain, emptiness. It's worthless. The issue of believing is not simply believing that something happened, but putting your faith in. So we have to understand this word believe. It means to trust, depend, or rely on something. So if you say you believe it's going to rain tomorrow, you believe the Packers are going to win today, you're just, you're, you're, that's wishful, hopeful thinking, but that's not what believe means in the New Testament. Believe in the New Testament is what are you relying on? What are you depending on? So Paul uh, is introducing and kind of building up to the fact, I'm going to tell you what you must put your faith in. So tell us already, Paul. Tell us, what must we believe in? It's who? It's Jesus Christ, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. And then there's a list we'll look at in a moment of some of those he appeared, Jesus appeared to. On what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? That's the gospel. That's the good news. To put your trust simply, only, clearly in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins and he rose again. These are the two pillars, the two essentials, the two undeniable core truths of Scripture. In fact, Paul calls it then that which is of most importance. Without the cross, there is no, there is no satisfaction of payment for our sin. We're lost in our sins without the cross. But without the resurrection, there is no uh, completion. There is no receipt marked paid that our sins really were paid for, but he rose again. There would be no eternal life without the resurrection. And so he says, this is, the, this is the most important truth. During, during the course of our study of 1 Corinthians, we've talked about a variety of things that are true. And, and what is true is true. And so we've sought to teach the truth. This is the most important. This is the most important core truth is faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. So let's just think through these simple truths. Who believes, whoever believes in Jesus, I'm sorry, we're going to look at the three, the, the important word. What, must, what does believe mean? It means to believe in. Who, verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Believe, believe, believe. So what are you believing in? Are you believing in Christ that he, what? He was punished in our place. That's the bottom line. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, or the tree is the word used there. So our sin was put on Jesus, and he bore our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, likewise, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Our sin was put on him. So that God the Father could pour out his wrath on Jesus because he so loved the world. He so loved you. He didn't want to punish you and me. He said, I will provide the substitute. My perfect sinless son will be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says here then, 
according to the scriptures. What scriptures did Paul have to open when he was in Corinth? He had the Old Testament, right? So probably he was referring to Isaiah 53. But he, Jesus, this is, speak, this is written 700 years before Jesus, but prophetically God is revealing his plan through Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How many ways can he say it? Our sin was put on Jesus, and God punished Jesus, so he wouldn't have to punish us. That's good news. That is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the scriptures prophesied he would die for our sins. Uh, Paul adds the uh, physical proof and that he was buried. So that, so that no one would question, did he really die and rise? Because th there's no way to prove you resurrected unless you can prove that he died. But he really died. Didn't just pass out, didn't just resuscitate. John, in his gospel, details how the soldiers broke the legs of Jesus and ran a spear up his side and, and blood and water came out. He was dead. Nicodemus took down the body and wrapped it in linen cloths and, and packed it with 75 pounds of spices. And all four writers describe how they took the body of Jesus and laid it in a tomb and a big stone was rolled over the front of it. And Matthew tells us how the Romans then uh, put a guard, probably these four men guarding. So Pilate wanted to make sure that no one would steal the body. And no one did. But he really died. If he didn't really die, our sins aren't paid for. And if he didn't really rise, then how could we be raised from the dead? How could we have any hope for eternal life? That's what First chapter 15 will be all about. So the second pillar of truth, he died for our sins, and secondly, he rose, was raised on the third day, that was Sunday. And all four Gospels give us uh, unique, undeniable uh, encounters of people with the risen Savior, those who saw him, they talked to him, they touched him. He was real, he was physical, he was alive. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, he arose. No one except Jesus was in the tomb to witness the resurrection, but we know he did because of what the scriptures tell us. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared to, verse 5, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, died, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared, Paul says, to me also as to one abnormally born. What a great but partial list. He appeared to Peter. Peter, the one who had denied him three times, got a special personal appearance. We aren't given the details of that appearance of Jesus. We're told of it here. It's mentioned just in, almost in passing in Luke 24, 34. He appeared to Simon. Simon, Peter got to, got to know for sure. If you wonder why Peter was so bold, it was because he had seen the resurrected Christ and because he had the Holy Spirit. He appeared to the Twelve. The Twelve was like a name for the, the disciples, the official group that followed him. But the, uh, when, when Jesus appeared to them, he, they weren't technically Twelve. They were Eleven, right? Judas had hung himself. 
So the first time was on Sunday night, the, the, the day of the resurrection. They were huddled in fear behind closed doors, and Jesus appeared to the 11, or rather to the 10, I should say, because it was not only Judas who had died, but Thomas who was missing that day. He appeared to 10 of the 12. The next Sunday night, he appeared to the same group, and Thomas was there, and Thomas, who had doubted, now suddenly believed, my Lord and my God. He appeared to the 12. He appeared many times, you realize, because we are doubters by nature. It's okay if we doubt. God's word is there for doubters. God's word is there to convince us of the truth. But Jesus appeared to 500 at once. The only place we are told this number is right here, and it was, was, was probably, I think, the, the, the crowd that was present when Jesus was on the mountain of Galilee giving the, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And Paul says most of them are still living. It, it, he's writing like 20 years after. Uh, this, after the resurrection of Christ. So he says, most of these people are still living. If you want to go check it out in Jerusalem, some have died, but uh, go interview. Do the interviews yourself. James. Uh, this is uh, not James, one of the apostles. Uh, that would be a little redundant because he's just talked to them, but he appeared to James in some uh, unique way. James, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew 13, 55 tells us how after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had uh, other children. Among them was James. John 7, 5 tells us that James did not believe in Christ, his, bro- his stepbrother, his half-brother. He didn't believe in him until this time, until he saw the, re- saw the resurrected Savior. Then he believed. And James becomes this amazing uh, pillar of, of uh, leadership in the Jerusalem church, Acts 15, and he becomes the one who writes the, the, the letter to, of James that we have in our New, Tis, New Testament. And then all the apostles. Apostles probably are a different group here than the 12. The apostles uh, are, are, are stated to be the ones who are the witnesses of the, resurrect, of, the, uh, of the ascension in Acts chapter 1. And so it could be a wider group than just the 10, 11, or 12. It is, it is those apostles, those who are sent and so, finally, Paul says, and to me, I'm, I'm come lately, born, born the wrong time. I wasn't one of the 12. I wasn't, I wasn't a believer when Jesus did all those miracles and did all that great teaching, and, and I wasn't a believer when he died and when he arose, but I saw the risen Savior. When did, you, when did Paul see the risen Savior? It was in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, who was this angry, persecuting enemy of the gospel, is making his way to Damascus, actually, to take prisoners of those who believed in Christ. And Jesus Christ appeared to him on that road, blinding gloriously, uh, and, and uh, saying, why are, you, why are you against me, Paul? And Paul realizes suddenly that he's been battling the Savior of the world because he now saw, heard the resurrected Jesus Christ, and it transformed him. So Paul never hesitated to, to bring up the resurrection of Jesus as the convincing proof, the, the paid receipt that establishes the validity of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so that we can have eternal life. So Corinthian Christians, Paul is saying, if you've placed your faith in this gospel, the gospel that says, verse 2, is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and so we can have eternal life. And this should be this, should be this, this, this stunning news to us today like it is in Corinth, that we can know for sure we will go to heaven when we die. We will live forever, either by dying and then being resurrected or else by rapture 
when Jesus Christ returns, and in fact, he's going to give us, tell us about that option at the end of chapter 15, where we're going to be changed in a moment for those who are alive when Jesus comes back in the rapture. So, wow, this is good news, the gospel. So, let's make sure we understand what is the gospel, what is the good news. The gospel that saves us is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. It's very brief. Don't, don't add to that. Don't add conditions before it. Don't add promises after it. The gospel that saves is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Could we say that together like twice? The gospel that saves us is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. The gospel that saves us is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Because the gospel that saves is very simple, very complete. The gospel that saves is that Jesus died for your sin and rose again. Are you trusting in anything else, anything other than Jesus who died for your sins and rose again? Are you trusting in being good? Are you trusting in trying hard? Are you trusting in a, a, a ritual that you were baptized when you were a baby or, or that you come on and take communion on communion Sunday? Are, are you trusting in, 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 in saying it's one religion that could save you, but we could be saved through any religion? No. The gospel by which you are saved is Jesus died for our sins and rose again. What are you trusting in? Some of you know Tuesday I came back from uh, uh, Phoenix seeing our new little granddaughter and uh, came to Milwaukee. Uh, I came from a city on Tuesday 1,850 miles away in three and a half hours. Can't do that on my own effort. In fact, I needed to surrender any effort at all to get from Phoenix to Milwaukee in that time. And I had to completely depend upon a plane manufactured by Boeing, maintained by Southwest Airlines, and piloted by a guy I've never met. I don't understand all the engineering, I don't understand all the technology, I don't understand the, the dynamics, how it all works, but I had to put my complete trust in, in, in all of that. I, did, I didn't help, it, help, this, help the plane at all. I, I slept part of the way. All I did was walk in and sat down. Walk in and sit down. And when I got off, no one cheered. Yay, Sid, good job coming from that far, that quick, good, I'm so proud. I didn't do it. I trusted the engineers. I trusted the craftsmen, the assemblers, the maintainers, the air traffic controllers, the, the pilot and the plane itself. And the good news is that my trust was well-founded and I arrived safe in Milwaukee. And Paul is introducing the good news of the gospel by saying, God has done everything necessary so that you can have eternal life. He died for our sins. Christ rose again. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Are you trusting in that which he provided? If for any reason you have a question in your own heart, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ, his death and resurrection? Please talk to one of us as pastors. Maybe talk to somebody uh, you know here. There's, there's nothing more important. That's why Paul said in verse, verse 3, it's, I'm going to tell you what's of most importance, and it would be the most important thing that we could ever share with you to make sure that you understand and you've put your faith in Christ 
alone. So the gospel will change everything about our future eternally. Paul goes on to say that the gospel, the grace of God that saved him, is also the grace that motivates him to serve Christ in the gospel. It changed his whole reason for living. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, not in vain. No, I worked harder than all of them, other apostles, from verse 8, I think. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So grace saves us, grace motivates us. Because grace has the power to save anyone, Paul says. I, I persecuted the church of God. He said, it was awful. Imagine the flashbacks he must have had that, that he used to persecute the very people that he now served, Christians. Acts 7 tells how the angry Jews in Jerusalem hated Christ and the gospel so much that they stoned godly Stephen to death, while the unsaved Paul, then called Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul stood there holding their clothes, and he was in full agreement with killing Christians. That was, that was the unsaved Paul. And then Acts 9 tells how Paul was breathing out, it says, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he got authorization from the high priest in Jerusalem, letters to go to Damascus and rip dads out of their home to go take them prisoner to Jerusalem because they believed in Jesus. He says, I didn't deserve to be an apostle. When we encounter people who hate the gospel, who hate Christ or who maybe hate us because we are Christians, just remember there could be a Paul among them. Remember the testimony of Paul God's grace has the power to save no matter how sinful a person's past. In 2017, the New York Times reported the story of Bashir Muhammad. In his early 20s, he was part of the uh, Syrian civil war, actually in a terrorist group associated with Al-Qaeda. And he said later, frankly, quote, I would have slaughtered anyone he eventually became disillusioned with that cause and fled with his family. And when Bashir's wife became gravely ill, he allowed one of the relatives of their family in Canada, who was a Christian, to pray for his wife over the phone. His wife recovered. And through that process, Bashir came to put his faith in Christ. In fact, the New York Times uses the phrase, from jihad to Jesus. And in 2021, Christian Broadcasting Network reported that he, uh, Bashir is leading a prayer meeting in his, weekly in his apartment in Istanbul. The gospel has the power to save anyone, no matter their past. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The, the, the cross is completely level. The foot of the cross is completely level. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some sin is worse in its uh, quantity, some is worse in its uh, impact on others. 
but all of us are equally undeserving of heaven. We all face God's judgment, but by the grace of God, we are what we are. So what are we after we have put our faith in Christ? Paul, what are you now? By the grace of God, I am. He's thinking of his identity. What are you, Paul? Read Ephesians 1 for the answer, because Paul says, here's what I am now. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. I am chosen. I am adopted. I am accepted. I am redeemed. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. I am God's possession forever. That is our identity. If you're ever struggling with who you are, the answer is in Ephesians 1. This is who you are. Blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, sealed, God's possession. That's who you are. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you are sealed forever. So by the grace of God, I am what I am. But Paul goes on to describe not only how grace changed who he was, but grace changed what he did. And his grace to me was not without effect, or his grace to me was not in, in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't useless. Back in verse 2, you could believe in something worthless, vain. He said, I made sure that when I came to faith in Christ that, that God's investment of grace in me was not in vain. It was not wasted. So the, the, the grace that God spent on Paul had no strings attached. And yet it was, an, it was an investment that paid off greatly. He says, I worked harder than all of them, other apostles. I don't think he's bragging because the next phrase is, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And any comparison he's making it seems to be basically this, that, that because my evil was greater before I was saved, I, I, I had this desire by the grace of God to work harder than anybody to serve Christ, to serve the gospel. Is it possible that sometimes, Christian, that God does not get a good return on his investment of grace? Yeah, it is. He says, I did not receive God's grace in vain. Interestingly, when he wrote to Corinthians the second time, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, he says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. So Paul says, I didn't receive God's grace in vain because I'm serving the gospel. And he says to the church later, he says, please don't let you be one that received God's grace in vain. You see, good works are the intended effect of God's grace. So we, we can't sit on our hands. We can't let God's grace be wasted in this life. It'll never be wasted in terms of eternity. We will glorify him forever. But he says, don't let... God's investment of grace be wasted here. It reminds me of uh, John 15 where Jesus was saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you bear a lot of fruit. And then he says in verse 6, he says, but there are branches that are like cut away and thrown in the fire. They become worthless. And he is not talking about people who will go to hell. He's talking about believers whose works, they really aren't. They aren't really serving. And so he says, I want to be a branch that's attached to the vine, drawing strength from the vine in fellowship with Christ. He says, because if, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. So whatever, as, as you think back to chapter 12 and all the ways in which God has gifted us and you will be very different than me and the next person, the next person, but you'll find that place where God can begin to use you. It's, you will be part of the fruit bearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Motivated by what? The grace of God. The grace of God. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. We are saved by grace. We serve by grace. Good works are not a condition of the gospel. Good works are not even a reliable proof of the gospel. There are unbelievers who do a lot of good works, and there are believers who don't do hardly any good works. So while good works are not a condition of salvation, they are the intention of salvation. One of the greatest verses about where, the, where works fit in is Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith means believing, trusting, going on that airplane, trusting in what Christ provided. We're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's not the end of the sentence. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Where do good works fit in? They are not the condition for salvation. They are not the proof of salvation, but they are the intended planned effect of salvation on the part of, of God and his plan for, for you. Grace changed Paul. It motivated Paul. He was not motivated to share the gospel with the fervor he did because, because Christ had put him on a guilt trip but rather Christ had put him on a grace trip. Everything about Paul was changed by everything about Christ. And the only thing that will sustain any of us in serving Christ is to be so immersed in the grace of God. Don't let someone guilt you into serving Christ. And don't let you do it to yourself because you feel this compulsion to impress God or someone. Don't serve. That'll never sustain you. But you will be sustained if you are, are so focused on the grace of Christ. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. He said, it doesn't matter whether this apostle or that person shared the gospel. It doesn't matter who or how you heard the gospel because the gospel is what matters, not who told you. But this is what we preach. This is going to be our focus. This is what we preach, and this is what you believe. We just got to get the gospel out. Years ago, we sought to formulate uh, our church purpose statement in a simple, easy-to-remember way. And so we uh, came up with three letters they are RBI, uh, not baseball, but reach, build, involve. And um, the first step is reaching people with the gospel. This is of first importance. Then building them in their faith so that they can be an I involved, reach, build, involve, that we could, they could be involved. So really it's a, it's a circular mindset. We reach people with the gospel, build them up in their faith so they can be involved in God's plan of reaching more people with the gospel to build them up in their faith to involve them in what? You know, that is what the church is about. So Paul is saying, yes, that is of first importance, verse 3. Let's make sure we get the gospel out. So when you think in terms of the whole book of, of 1 Corinthians with all those problems, why did Paul address all those problems? He addressed all those moral problems, relational problems, spiritual problems, because they were destroying the unity of the church. And a disunified church cannot accomplish the purpose of the church. 
They were, they were all absorbed in all of these problems. And Paul says, I've got to address the problems because they, had, they distract us from our one main job of proclaiming the gospel. Disunity about anything will distract us from the main thing. And whether that's going to be disunity about political things, minor doctrinal things, relational things that we get stuck in our mind that we're upset about somebody, some did something, said something. Disunity about anything will distract us from the main thing. In chapter 1, Paul began this letter with a clear focus on the importance of the cross. He said, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he starts the whole letter saying, the preaching of the cross, that's what I'm all about. But then he has to take chapters 2 through 14 to deal with problems so that he can get back in chapter 15 to the main thing. And the main thing of first importance is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And that's what we preach and that's what people believe and that's what gives us eternal life. So let's, let's try to shrink chapters 2 to 14. That we not be disunified. That we not, that we not be unfocused distracted from anything but the main thing, to reach people with the gospel. That they put their faith in Christ who died for their sins and rose again because then they will live forever with us and we will glorify him forever. And that's, that's good news. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Our world is in terrible uh, travail because of sin. And we know that uh, all this is known to you. We know that our own sin is known to you. And we thank you that though you know us completely and perfectly and know just how, how deep the layers of sin go in each of our lives, you, you nonetheless uh, planned us, chose us, adopted us, redeemed us, sealed us. So we stand in your grace and we thank you. And, oh Lord, I pray that we have not received your grace in vain, but that it would have its full effect in our life, that we would give our lives fully to uh, proclaiming you. And so we want to, Lord, uh, week by week, day by day, uh, refocus and reset our lives to, to do that which will glor accomplish the gospel and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.